Uh, we don't do it as a kind of a group activity. We, we just sort of imagine that we're doing it as a group activity. I'm not going to ask you to give me answers, but I have a word in my head. I'm going to mention the word. And I want you just to kind of hold in your head the first word that comes to mind when I mention the word that I have in my head. Okay, ready? Here's the word. Saint. Saint. So it'd be fun, wouldn't it, to, to kind of go around the room and, and have, and we could put them on a big whiteboard, you know, just put words that come into people's heads as they hear that word saint. It could be that names actually pop into your heads. Um, for example, you could think of me. But you probably didn't. You probably thought, or you might have thought of somebody like Mother Teresa. Or, or some person who, in your mind, though the rest of us may not know this person, stands out as being a remarkably spiritually-minded, godly person. It could be that words like holy popped into your head, or monk, or priest, or something like that. But my guess is that no one would have said, when you heard the word saint, My guess is no one would have said me. Not me, but you. Myself. It's just not in our vocabulary. It's not really in our way of thinking about ourselves, it seems to me, that we identify ourselves as saints, and yet that is how the New Testament identifies you. The New Testament identifies you as saints. That is precisely what you are. If you are a Christian, you are identified as a saint. Romans 1, verse 7, Paul, in those opening verses, um, introduces himself, and and in the first six verses, he sort of introduces what it is that he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about Jesus Christ, who is descended from David, who is declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead by the Spirit of holiness. But then when he comes to the greeting, he greets those who are living in Rome, loved by God, and called to be saints. Called to be saints. That's how he addresses them. That's how he identifies them. You think of yourself in that way? Have you ever thought of yourself in that way as a saint? Now, be clear about what a saint is. The word saint derives from the word which means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be set apart by God and for God. I mean, even the word itself begins to capture some of the beauty and wonder, the spectacular loveliness of the gospel. Because a saint is someone who is set apart by God, set apart for God, all by God's grace. Grace that is grounded and rooted in God's mercy, his compassion towards sinners, which itself is rooted in God's love, God's loving particular sinners. So just the idea of being a saint conjures up necessarily notions of God's grace. And when God begins to work, 
and sets a person apart, separates a person for himself, he separates that person for specific purposes. So a saint is someone who is set apart by God for God for specific purposes, all by God's grace. And that's really what's being worked out in chapter 12, after those first two verses, beginning in verse 3. What Paul is doing here is helping these Romans understand what it is that God has set them apart for. They're living in Rome, right? We all know the phrase. I was reminded of this by one of the commentators. We've all heard the phrase, probably used the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Well, you see what Paul is saying is, though you live in Rome, don't do as the Romans. You're being called to something very, very different. You're being called to something remarkably different. We're to think of ourselves. This is where change and transformation begins. It begins with the mind. It doesn't stop there. The mind, the mind is, is sort of irretrievably connected to the heart and to the soul. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. From the Proverbs. Remember this from several weeks ago. All of you, if you read through the Proverbs, there's this interchanging of thinking and desiring, longing, the, the intersection of mind and heart. But it begins with our thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's where this change begins. And Paul uses four times in this third verse a word that has to do with thinking. The root is the same in each case. I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober thinking. That's kind of the literal thing. All four of those words have the same basic root. And that's the effect. You see, if you've come to Jesus Christ, if you've believed in him, if you've entrusted yourself to him, everything begins to change, and it begins with how you think. And that transformation of thinking begins to find expression in living. The second verse. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern, which is to say you may display, you may put on display, you may show what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, there's an, there's, there's an inevitable connection between this transformation that Jesus Christ is effecting and accomplishing and it's outworking in the way that we live. There becomes a display of the will of God. Never perfectly. We understand that. That's why we live under the shadow of the cross. That's why we never get far from the cross. Because it's never perfect. It's always imperfect. And yet it's real. It's real. Real change. Real transformation begins to take place. And that's where we are in this letter. We're at the point in this letter where Paul is beginning to work out, he's beginning to outline what that change will look like. And it's, it's stunning to me, and frankly frightening, where it is that the apostle starts to work out what this transformation and change looks like. Where does he start? 
He starts with me. He starts with me, these three things that I mentioned last week, how I think about myself, how I think about you, and how I think about why I'm here. And the first one has enormous implications for the second two. How do I think about me? That's the first thing. How do I think about myself? Verse 3 again, Paul says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Now remember this, Paul has never met these people. He doesn't know them from Adam. He knows some of them because he lists a bunch of names in chapter 16. He knows Rufus. He knows Persis. He knows Eponidas. He knows Mary. He knows Apelles. He knows a whole bunch of others. But he doesn't know the vast majority of the people who are in these churches, these house churches, quite probably, who are receiving this letter. But the one thing that he knows about all of them And the one thing that he knows about all of us, the one thing that he knows about all people, is that we have this inherent propensity to think of ourselves more than we ought to think. We have this this relentless propensity to think of ourselves more highly, he says, than we ought to think. Now, what's interesting to me, and I, I this is, said this to you before, this is what I love about my job. What's interesting to me is the exact literal translation of the word that is translated by the ESV, think more highly of himself than he ought to think. What the ESV does is actually insert a little prepositional phrase between the two parts of the verb. The little prepositional phrase of himself disconnects the preposition from the main part of the verb. Think more highly or think above. The word is, the the, uh, prefix is hyper or huper in the original, but we would translate it hyper. So how do you translate the word literally? And this is not only sort of literal, but it's fairly illustrative. How do you translate this verb? Hyperthink. Over-the-top think. Think above. In some sense, this is a very legitimate way to to translate it. Think in behalf of or think for the sake of. Hyperthink. Think above. Think for the sake of. Think beyond. Think over. Overthink. Honestly, would be a very good literal translation of the verb. By the grace given to me, I say to you, not to think, hyper-think, think more of, about yourself than you ought to think. Now that can express itself in a couple of ways, can't it? Hyper-thinking, thinking of myself more than I ought to think, can have its find its expression among people who are arrogant, who really do think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. 
So there's a, there's a word here for the arrogant, for those who have an inflated view of themselves. You ever run into anybody like that? I, I have. I live with him. I live with him. Don't you, don't you as, you know, as you're honest and you reflect upon yourself, isn't there a sort of a hyper-thinking that's, that's sort of woven into the fabric of your own heart? An inclination to think more highly of yourself with respect to someone else or some other group of people than you ought to think? Isn't there, even in your heart, a kind of an arrogance that emerges from time to time with respect to other people? That's, that's hyper-thinking. That's thinking more about yourself and allowing this, in, this propensity to have an inflated view of yourself to take hold, take root, and produce a lot of bad fruit in your soul, in your heart, and even in your relationships. Paul's saying to these folks, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. I say to you, by the grace given to me, not to think more of yourself, not to overthink, hyperthink with respect to yourself. Now, what's the antidote to that? What's the antidote to this having an inflated view of yourself, this superior estimation of yourself? Let me suggest, let me suggest three things. Let me suggest that you think in terms of creation. Think in terms of creation. Simply put, in terms of creation, everything you are and everything you have has been given to you. Everything you are and everything you have is a gift. There's only, well, there might be two ways to account for everything you are and everything you have. One of the ways you can account for everything you are and everything you have is the way Richard Dawkins accounts for everything you are and everything you have. And it's printed in your bulletin. Richard Dawkins accounts for everything in terms of DNA. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's one answer to the question, how did I get to be the person that I am? It's a crapshoot. It's a roll of the dice. It's just DNA. It's the random, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, the ran, random configuration of Adam against Adam, God against God. Crapshoot. Luck of the draw. That, of course, is not the answer that we give. As Christians, we give a very different answer. We say unhesitatingly and gladly that it isn't impersonal forces that have produced who and what I am. That the infinite personal God who is really there, the tripersonal God, who is robed in holiness and justice, who knows eternal joy and love from before the foundation of the world, the infinite personal triune God, a God who is sovereign, who is wise, who is purposeful, That God is the source of all that I am and all that I have. I exist 
by his will and good pleasure. So that means that my my gifts, I'm, I'm struck by this as I read Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God reminds the Israelites when they get into the land and they begin to enjoy the fruit of the land, this land flowing with milk and honey, that they remember that God is the one who brought them to the land, who created the land, who made the land fruitful, and that it is not by their power or ability, but by his. He gives them the ability to make wealth. He gives that ability. I, I, I just so want to sit down with Donald Trump. I, I just... I just so want to sit down with Bill Gates, who, at least in terms of his outward persona, is very different from Donald Trump. But I'd like to have coffee with the two of them and just ask them this question. How do you account for your existence? How do you account for the gifts that you have, the abilities you have? Those native inborn things which you have employed to create this massive wealth? The Christian answer to that question is the infinite personal God who is really there is the source of it all. I am who and what I am by the creative power of God. That's humbling, isn't it? It should be. It should be a strong antidote to this this impulse to have an inflated view of ourselves with respect to someone else or some other group of people. But then there's a second thing too, and it's been a theme through this service. There is also providence. There is also providence. You account for who you are, your exact personality, your temperament, your gifts, your abilities in terms of the creative act of God, But then you have to ask the question, how is that this stuff comes to expression in and through my life? And you answer that question by affirming the reality of providence. That these things that we've confessed this morning really are true of God. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. See, see, it isn't the case that God created the world, set it moving, and that it now just runs by these laws that are worked into the fabric of this physical and material universe. What we're affirming is that God, by his power and according to his wisdom, upholds everything that he has made, every nanosecond of every day across the whole space of human history and throughout the whole of the cosmos. The stars hang in the heavens by the power of God. And you sit in these seats today because that same power has been and is operative 
upholding you in this moment of your existence. So when you ask questions like this, why were you born where you were born? Look, you know I go to Africa every year. I'm telling you, I meet pastors in the Diocese of Mata and Ukeroe who are as bright and as gifted as Tim Keller. And they live in little villages and have churches of 100 people. How come you don't know their names and you know Tim Keller's name? The providence of God. It is not Tim Keller or any, anybody else. I don't know who you listen to. I don't want to know because I'd probably say, no, don't listen to him. Listen to him instead. He's much better to listen to. Why were you born where you were born? How do you account for the fact that your life has taken the particular shape that it has taken? You realize what a lucky thing it is that you were born in the United States of America in the 20th century? Or the 21st century? What a lucky thing. What a stroke of luck. Boy, don't you love DNA? DNA neither knows nor cares. It just is, and we dance to its music. The Christian affirms something markedly different, that the infinite personal God who has created everything upholds and sustains everything, and he is the ultimate and final explanation for why you are who you are and why you are where you are. And that's humbling, isn't it? That's humbling to know that you could have been born in a very different time and in a very different place. I think I've told this story We're all really, really lucky that things worked out this way, I think. My father was in the army in the Second World War. He was involved in the Battle of the Bulge, the follow-up to the Battle of the Bulge. He was a radio man. The spotters out in the field radioed in the coordinates where enemy troop um, artillery positions were located. And my dad would convey those coordinates to the American artillery, and they would lob their shells in the direction of those German forces, those enemy forces. My dad had been on the radio for 36 straight hours. He finally got relief. He left his radio station, left the building in which the radio station was located, walked around the corner, and a mortar shell hit that building and killed the guy who was on the radio. How do I account for that? How do I account for the fact that I'm here? that you're here, that anybody's here. Ever stop to think about what a remarkable thing it is that you exist at all? Contemplate that. I don't mean to be indiscreet, but if your conception had occurred on the next day, you wouldn't be here. Somebody else would be. All of these things are held in the hands of of the infinite, wise, purposeful, loving, gracious God who created you in the first place. And that's humbling. But then here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. Creation, providence, and the third thing is, of course, redemption. 
redemption. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, on the basis of the mercies of God, with the mercies of God always in view. What are those mercies? It's what's contained in those first 11 chapters of Romans. I urge you, brothers, in view of those mercies, that you not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, that you not have an inflated view of yourself. I urge you that you not think that you are actually better or above or superior to someone else, whether the homeless guy living under the bridge or the person of a different ethnicity. If you're struggling with that, you need to reread over and over and over again Romans 1.16 through 11.36 and remember that you are a sinner saved solely by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is a contradiction in terms to describe someone as an arrogant Christian. It is even shameful that such a thing could exist. I am what I am because of the mercies of God. And again and again and again, I must go back to them. And it is only the realities of the mercies of God in the gospel that are big enough to flush out of our minds and flush out of our hearts the propensity to have an inflated view of self. It's only those mercies that are sufficient, adequate, big enough to flush out of our minds and flush out of our hearts this inflated view of self. Now, there's the other tendency too, isn't there? There's the tendency of the lowly. There's the tendency of the lowly who have a low view of themselves, the chronically fearful and insecure. It's ironic, it's paradoxical, but they actually think too much of themselves as well. The chronically fearful and insecure actually fall prey to the same thing. They set themselves at the center of everything and hyperthink with respect to themselves. Linda Ronstadt has a great song written by Warren Zevon, Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. Poor, poor, pitiful me. Victim of love. Victim, victim, victim. I'm so unattractive. I'm so little. I don't have any gifts. I don't have anything to offer. Interestingly, the antidote, it seems to me, to this sort of hyper-thinking where I'm actually ironically, paradoxically setting myself again at the center of everything and hyper-thinking with respect to myself. The antidote is actually the same, isn't it? And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do. He's encouraging us to assess ourselves in a sober and reflective way. And the word sober is sort of illustrative too, isn't it? When you're not sober, when you're drunk, what, what, you're intoxicated with something, right? And what's, what's Paul encouraging us to do? He's encouraging us to get sober. 
to be intoxicated not with ourselves, whether we have a high and inflated view of self, or whether we're Linda Ronstadt, poor, poor, pitiful me. Two kinds of self-intoxication. And what is Paul encouraging us to do? It seems to me that he's encouraging us to be intoxicated with something else. He's encouraging us to be intoxicated with someone else. Again, he keeps saying, don't lose sight of the mercies of God. And what are the mercies of God filled with? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So the remedy here is the same. It is the mercy of God. Who you are in Jesus Christ. Your identity in Jesus Christ. That you are redeemed. That you are forgiven. That you are made clean. That you are given this incredible status as a son. And remember, you have to go all the way back to chapter 8 to remember that sonship is status. It's not generic. It's not just for boys. Sonship is status. It has to do with being an heir. And Paul goes on to say that we are heirs with Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus inherits, I as his brother inherit. I am a son, but I am also a child. And that is the filial and relational dimension. Fathers love their sons and daughters. And this father loves his sons and daughters perfectly. Perfectly and completely. What is the antidote to self-intoxication that leads me? to the Linda Ronstadt place, poor, poor, pitiful me. It is thinking less of myself and more of Jesus Christ, in whom is my true identity. That's who I am. Tim Keller makes this wonderful comment in a little booklet that we have out on the book table, and I don't remember the name of it, but I'll hand it to you. I think we still have some. He makes this wonderful little comment. The key to the Christian life is not to think less of yourself. The key to the Christian life is to think of yourself less. And to think of Jesus Christ more. And who he is. And who you are in him. That's really the critical thing, isn't it? How do I think about myself? As I said, it will impact greatly these other two things. How do I think about you? How do I view you? And why am I here? How do I think about you? Or here's here's another way to put it, to use the language that the apostle uses in this passage. To whom do I belong? To whom do I belong? To whom do you belong? See, you see what I mean about this being, being so challenging and provocative and even frightening in this culture, in our culture, where I am mine and my stuff is mine? This highly individualistic culture of ours? You see what Paul says, verses 4 and 5? For as In one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
We are members one of another. I belong to you. You belong to me. You know how the body works? You ever break a toe? That little toe on the outside of your foot? You ever bruise it badly? It's just a little toe. It seems so insignificant. Break it. It affects everything. Right? I came back from Africa, brought a little friend with me. You couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. That little friend affected everything. When one little thing begins to go bad, what is affected? The whole of the body. You are a body. You belong to, yes, Jesus Christ. But by virtue of the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to one another. And your gifts and your abilities and your stuff do not belong to you. They belong to Jesus. And because you are connected to Jesus, my stuff is your stuff, your stuff is my stuff, my gifts, your gifts, your gifts, my gifts. There is an interwovenness and an interconnectedness. I say to the inquirer's class, when folks go through the inquirer's class, when you get stuck to Jesus, you get stuck to his people. Because all of his people are connected to him. You belong to each other. And then third, finally, why am I here? I mean, there's so much more that could be said about all of this. But third, why am I here? Now, Paul gives a partial list of gifts in these verses, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. But the phrase I want to emphasize is what Paul says about the use of these gifts. Use them. Use them. How do I know what my gifts are? You know, I've I've been in churches and and been around places where they do these spiritual gift analyses, right? And they they try to kind of cut you open from neck to navel and and peer into the inner recesses of the soul and try to figure out what your particular gift is. And it's like people are immobilized until they identify what the particular gift is. I'm not sure that's the best way to go about this. I think the best way to go about this is do something Do something. Do the thing that needs to be done. And in the process of doing the thing that needs to be done, you will be answering the question, why am I here? You are here for one another. And so do the thing that needs to be done. It may seem like a small thing. It may seem like a humbling thing. It may seem like an over-the-top thing. I'm not about calling attention I'm really not about calling attention to particular people. I'm really not. And she's not going to like it when I do this. But Barb is a champion at doing the thing that needs to be done. In our years of marriage and in our years in ministry, there are two things, three, she has not done. She's not sung in the choir, she's not played the piano, and she's not preached. You do the thing that needs to be done, and as you do the thing that needs to be done, you begin to see where your inclinations are, where your gifts are, where your abilities are. 
There's a great example of this, I think, in Nehemiah. I'm in Nehemiah in my Bible reading. Nehemiah chapter 3, the wall needs to be built. Go read it. It's fascinating. Trumpeters are building the wall. Priests are building the wall. Farmers are building the wall. All kinds of different gifts. Go read Nehemiah 3. But they're all engaged in doing the thing that needs to be done. Why? Because they're members one of another. Twelve tribes? Sure. But they are members one of another. So they do the thing that needs to be done. And in the course of doing the thing that needs to be done, gifts begin to be manifested I think my favorite example and illustration of this is actually the film Saving Private Ryan. Throughout the film, the guys in, in Tom Hanks' platoon ask him what he did before the war. And you don't know until very near the end of the war, until the end of the, the film. But toward the end of the film, you learn that he was an English teacher. And presumably he was an English teacher either because he loved literature or he loved, which I can't really imagine, that whole business of taking sentences apart and graphing them on a chalkboard like we all did in ninth grade. Presumably he did those things because he loved it and because he was good at it. But they were at war. And he did the thing that needed to be done. He picked up a rifle and went to battle. Folks, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And therefore, we do what the one who has purchased us did. We serve. We serve. We put our gifts to use. So, this really does, it seems to me, strike at the heart of so much of how we seem to be hardwired with a preoccupation with ourselves and our stuff and wanting to be served. But I am, I am in Jesus Christ and by virtue of being in Jesus Christ, I am connected to you, you are connected to me and we are here together to serve. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, We need grace, we need help, we need for you to extend mercy to us. This is challenging, Uh, challenging uh, to me, and I, I suspect challenging to all of us. But Lord, would you shower us, lavish us with your enabling grace, empowering grace, with that grace that creates selfless people, people who do, in fact, think of themselves less because we have thought so much more of you. Help us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.